and welcome to Church in Maine, the podcast at the intersection of faith and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Church in Maine is a podcast that looks for God in the midst of the issues affecting the church and the larger society. You can learn more about the podcast, listen to past episodes, and donate by checking us out at churchinmaine, all one word, dot org, or churchinmaine, all one word, dot substack, dot com. Consider subscribing to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and leave a review that helps others find this podcast. So on this episode, I talked to Rabbi Brad Hirschfield about the October 7th terrorist attacks in southern Israel, its aftermath, and how Christians should respond. Now, some have likened the attacks on October 7th, which killed some 1,400 Israelis, as that nation's September 11th. And there is something to that reference on the surface. The brazenness of the attacks, with the Hamas terrorists overrunning barriers, using paragliders and drones to attack civilians, can remind Americans of planes hitting the World Trade Center and the Pentagon on September 11, 2001. But the stories of the slaughter, the rapes, and the beheadings, because the victims were Jewish, hearken more to something akin to the Holocaust. Israel is responding, of course, by attacking Hamas in Gaza. That means, of course, that there is more suffering for the people of Gaza who are caught in the middle. In all of this, how should Christians respond? What can we learn from this experience? And where can hope be found? I had the honor of speaking with Rabbi Brad Hirschfield last week to get his views on the Israel-Gaza crisis. He is the president of CLAL, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, and also the executive editor for Wisdom Daily. He's also the author of the book, You Don't Have to Be Wrong for Me to Be Right, Finding Faith Without Fanaticism. And he's written on spiritual issues on various media, including Huffington Post, Pathos, Fox News Opinion, and the Washington Post. He's also been named one of America's 50, 50 most influential rabbis by Newsweek. Now, while this subject matter is pretty dark, Brad exudes hope. And that's something that I think is in very short supply in our culture and is sorely needed in our world today. So, pull up a chair, lend an ear, and listen to Rabbi Brad Hirschfeld. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So I think the first thing really one to start off is is kind of to ask um, how are, are you doing in the aftermath of, of how things have happened? And also kind of in, in doing some background work, knowing that you have some connections to knowing people um, in Israel, kind of how they are doing. So thank you for the questions. And I'm always torn about the answer. There's a part of me that's been trained by a lifetime, as many of us have been, especially for clergy. Oh, I'm fine. 
<laughs> I, I'm fine. My job is to take care of you. I'm just fine. Um, on top of that, uh, the term self-care actually makes my skin itch. I'm so bad at it. I say that with no great pride. Uh, and then I want to quote Mayor Eric Adams of New York City, whose first words when he spoke about the war going on in Israel and Gaza and said, we are not okay. Mm. And so both are true. And I want to put it in the context. There is nothing that I am feeling today, even as I talked to you from New York, but Israel was home for a bunch of years, from like 17 to 21. And, and my brother and his whole family live there. And I have nephews who are on literally the front lines right now. Mm. Nothing I am feeling is different than what hundreds of thousands, even millions of other people are feeling. So I can describe the feelings with the giant caveat. There's nothing special about me. There's nothing unique about me. In fact, my family so far, thank God, is physically safe. Everyone's connected to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, I have friends whose kids are kidnapped and or presumed dead. My wife and I have three kids. Our middle daughter, one of her former campers and students, and they were kind of raised in this very, you know, in a religious, modern Orthodox, Zionist, Israel-loving community. So this is their life too. One of her former campers and students fell in battle on the second day of the war. Mm -hmm. So I have a 26-year-old daughter who's mourning her 21-year-old student. And it's tough. But again, it's no tougher than what lots of other people are dealing with and better than what some of them are dealing with. So there's nothing to complain about. I think the impulse here is to figure out how people can remain both deeply sensitive to pain, wherever it is. And I want to be clear, it doesn't even matter which side of the battle line it's on. Right? Human pain doesn't know that distinction. And to also remain morally resolute in the face of a conflict, which I feel confident saying, actually as confident saying that just as I know pain knows no national boundaries, that you don't have to build that sensitivity based on moral relativism. I don't believe the sides are equal. And so remaining both morally resolute and genuinely compassionate, that's, that's the struggle. Yeah, how do you kind of maintain that struggle? Because I think, especially when it comes to this issue, there is a lot of trying to make things equal, or it can also be incredibly out of balance. So, you know, so far out of balance. So, I mean, how do you maintain that? To try so to family that and out? friends help. <laughs> mm -hmm. Really finding moments. By the way, this conversation helps because we're talking and I hear the calm in your voice and the smile on your face and, and, and all of that. Anything that affirms life at moments when life is challenged does help. Mm -hmm. I also always remember that most of what most of us think about what's going on, unless we are immediately on the front lines of battle, our analysis and our assessment is as much about who we are as the situation is. Mm. And I understand full well that most of us who go for those easy, 
and I will say dangerous moral equivalences. Not everyone, but most do it not out of mean spiritedness. They do it because I think they're afraid that they will lose their compassion if things are not equal. Mm. So they use so moral equivalence is not, I mean, for some people, it's clearly an ugly political tactic. And I want to be clear when you tell the world that the Israeli army bombed the hospital, when it turns out you knew within seconds that actually Palestinian Islamic Jihad did it, but it was a failed missile launch, that's cynical. I do not think that's true of most people. I think most people need, it's a shame they need it, need moral equivalence because that is the coin with which they purchase their legitimate compassion for both sides. Mm -hmm. By the same token, I worry about people who feel they need to squelch their compassion because it would make them less morally resolute. If I feel I have any contribution to make, it is in reminding people that you don't have to give up one to maintain the other. And when you're in the heat of battle, that may not be true, but everyone else we can actually stand up and say there is room for both strongly, morally resolute positions and genuine compassion that transcends the fact that the sides are not equal. Mm. I'm reminded of a tale, um, and I don't know if you're familiar with the writer um, and activist Will Campbell, um, and- who did a lot of work on on um, civil rights. Mm-hmm. and he kind of had to learn in in some ways and had his eyes opened by a friend of his about the importance of loving his enemies. And that included loving people who were, who were avowed racist. And it kind of reminds me about that, that he, he never lost his spirit in um, civil rights. um, But he also was able to reach out um, to those that he disagreed with. Right. And again, I want to be clear because, and I'll say happily, not in my sacred tradition, I don't feel compelled to love my enemies. I I understand. And and, and we can talk about whether or not it's a good teaching or less Mm -hmm. than helpful teaching. But I want to be clear. The fact that we are not obligated to love our enemies Mm -hmm. does not mean we are not obligated to have our hearts break for them when they suffer. Yes. And... and I'm torn between feeling that the mandate to love one's enemies is actually misguided, which I say respectfully, because it asks for what actually cannot be. And the other view, which is no, it is a deeply beautiful and totally aspirational value, which if not stated, we ain't ever going to get past having enemies. Hmm. And so I'm kind of grateful for not feeling the obligation and stand a bit in awe of people who lift it up as a sacred obligation. Mm. And that's understandable. And I think maybe more what I was trying to get at was the comparison of the two, that you don't lose compassion for the enemy, even though, even though you have a greater concern about things like civil rights. If you do, my experience is you end up becoming a whole lot more like your enemy than you ever meant to. Hmm. 
right? And so yeah. when people ask, well, how can you even talk about compassion at this moment? I go, it's, it's not easy, but I mean, it's obvious that we have to because I'm not just fighting against something. I'm fighting for something. And the thing I'm fighting for is the ability to have compassion. That's exactly what the enemy doesn't have. So if I don't want to become more and more like that enemy, I have to fight not only against that enemy, but for the compassion they lack. Mm-hmm. And that starts with me. In fact, it's a funny, I mean, it's not related to this conflict at all, because you mentioned civil rights. Um, the departed sociologist, Peter Berger, mm-hmm. tells a story when he was a young college student. He was a freedom writer. And he and a buddy of his, you know, their lives are a danger. And right? on any given day, Buses get burned. People get beaten within an inch of their life. It's not right. But he heard that there was a Klan rally not far from where their buses were parked. So he turns to this friend of his and says, let's go. We're two white guys. They won't know the difference. We won't talk. They won't hear our northern accents. Let's go see our enemy. And his friend looked at him and said, you're insane. We, that's, we, are you nuts? They're trying to kill us. No. No, 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 we're not doing that. He goes, no, we have to do that. So I've heard the story both ways, both that he convinced the guy and once that he went alone. Doesn't matter. Here's the pivotal moment. He gets toward the rally. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine, right? They're in the woods somewhere down south and burning crosses and people in hoods. I mean, it's an absolute nightmare scenario. And as he's getting closer, he hears them, the Klansmen and their supporters, singing the same hymn that he and his friends had been singing on the bus earlier in the day. Hmm. And he realized, again, no moral equivalence, no weakening of resolve, but an, a life-changing awareness that the people against whom he was struggling were not as different from him as he had liked to tell himself. Hmm. And I remember the first time I heard that story, uh, and and that's got to be 25 years. Here I am still telling it because what an amazing awareness to have. right? It isn't that, oh, my God, they're kind of like us, so maybe we should give up the struggle. No, that would be insane. And not... I can't hear this because I can't struggle against them if I admit we're kind of connected. No, I live with the awareness that we're more alike that makes me comfortable. And the struggle continues. And I would suggest that's exactly what differentiates his and those riders' sacred struggle mm-hmm. from the altogether unholy struggle that those clansmen were fighting for. Mm. So one of the things in the article that you wrote um, that you talk about is how there can be positive outcomes that can come out of an event. I, I struggle not to say good because that's not really really what I think you, you're trying to say or I am trying to say. But what are the what is positive or what can come out of this that can foster better understanding, foster more pluralism? Look, I hate the fact that all of us, and I'm starting with myself, seem to need to feel pain and or fear 
before we really reorient our lives. Hmm. In no way am I going to be the one who says it's worth it. But we do know that battles have been fought multiple times in history that caused fundamental reorientations that allowed people who had been sworn enemies to at least tolerate one another more and actually sometimes come to appreciate one another more. Now, we're a long way from doing that. But if anyone had, for example, if anyone had said in 1946 that Germany would come to be one of the moral and financial leaders of Western Europe, mm-hmm. that the German state would take in more refugees from Arab lands than any other country, people would have said, you must be on drugs. That's impossible. And I guess if you said, well, Brad, I mean, yes, that's an example from history, but you are kind of nuts. And I would say, I guess so, but that's the kind of good nuts that I want faith to fuel. Right? And as, if, if as people of faith, we can't figure out how to remain optimistic without becoming naive, I think we're doing it wrong. Right? If faith makes us naive, I think that's a very poor idea. But if really being possessed of a deep faith doesn't help us believe, that our best days are yet ahead of us. I don't understand that kind of faith. I don't make claims about what God wants or doesn't want or what's in the plan or what's not in the plan because it's just too easy. It's usually someone else paying for that. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I do believe we're part of something bigger. And I do believe there is a force for love and for light and for life in the world that is bigger than any of us. And so without becoming naive, I hope, I don't want to give up on their faith. Hmm. Which sounds a lot like the gentleman that you refer to um, in the Israeli special forces that talks about things just right after all of this happened. And he talks, you know, grief and anger and rage and hope. Yeah. And that almost sounds weird to hear that and yet but it also as an, another person of faith makes some sense because yeah there's that. no other way yeah. i think if you can't have that and hope is not just hope we're going to kill all our enemies that's not a hope no. <laughs> the idea that there we might not be able to see around the corners of history but we believe that they're there and everyone who i know who comes out in any way whole from fighting, not just against something, but for something larger than themselves, understands that feeling. Right? That guy happens to, you know, former captain of special forces. Now he's a high-tech entrepreneur, a very successful guy. He's lived all over the world, mostly at home in Israel. Um, and yeah, with rage, with anguish, with pain, but yes, still hope has to be hope because without that, then we're just then it's just a game of survival, and this is the stakes are too high to just survive. We're in this all of us, I think, to thrive. Mm-hmm. 
what do you think is I think that every faith in many different ways has different things to bring basically to our human condition. And in the article that you write, you think that there are resources that Judaism brings to bear in, in life and in general, um, in this tragedy, but also in, in life in general. What are those resources that you think um that your faith brings, I mean, not just to you, but, but to the world in general. So, I mean, I can go, God, there's so many, it's such a great question and I don't even know where to begin except to now tell you what it first comes to my mind since we've been talking about the compassion across boundaries Then I'll get to the other stuff. I don't think it's an accident that scripture, whether for those of us who only see the, who only see the the Hebrew Bible as the revealed word of God. Yes, I do. Uh, or those of us who see both the Old and New Testament as being gifts of God in a revealed way. I, I can't say sacred because, and I hope you won't misunderstand this, that I am not a Christian, I'm not like, but I cannot deny that the New Testament is a sacred document. And I and anyone who thinks you have to deny that is missing the boat as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, that our stories don't begin with Jews and Christians. Our stories begin with two people who have no stated faith at all and are declared to be in the image of God. There is a boldness in that that I try and hold on to every day. Again, I'm not saying you have to believe literally that there are these two people and every person who ever was born comes out of that, because I'll confess, I don't believe that. But I believe in a story that says deep down we are all related, Jewish and Christian and Muslim, atheist and Buddhist and Hindu, black and white, yellow and brown, that we are all created in the image of God and that nothing ever can take that away. No politics, no circumstance, no whatever the world throws at you can take that away. That we are part of a tradition that says at the very bottom of it all, life may conspire to make that a stupid claim because of how we are treated. But that's the world's problem. And our job is to restore a world in which everyone feels that it's a credible claim to say you as you are are created in the image of God. That's the first and best resource that I know. The other end of the spectrum, the most particularist way is, I'm a Jew and I'm here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Nothing about that makes sense. (laughs) Nothing about that actually makes sense, except to believe that not only am I a Jew and I'm here, but I have a thriving life. And the Jewish people collectively, despite this horrendous moment, are thriving in ways that are unprecedented. And it's not an easy thing to say, but the fact of the matter is, two weeks ago Saturday, more people were murdered because they were Jewish or because they were in Israel. Because remember, not everyone who was murdered was Jewish. Mm-hmm. 
There were Christian and Muslims, both tourists and Arab residents of Israel, who were murdered. But more Jews died two weeks ago this coming Saturday and any day since the Holocaust. Here's the difference. The people and the army of the state of Israel is there now to defend them. I hate that that's necessary. But that is, as they say in our world, a big upgrade. To not depend simply on what we pray will be the mercy of others to stop killing us. And to say that, no, we have a role in defending ourselves. And then the next thing I would say is to remember that the reason I believe God gives us strength is as God promised to Abraham, I will be a blessing to you, and in you the people of the world will be blessed. I believe in Jewish power. I want to say it as starkly as I can. I believe in Jewish power that fights both for the thriving of the Jewish people and to actually be a gift to the world so that people feel blessed by our presence. Mm. If we're only doing the first, then God's promise to Abraham remains unfulfilled. It's when we're doing the two of them together that that promise in Genesis 12 begins to come true. Mm. So one of the things that has obviously happened in the days since um, October 7th is how people respond. And being a Christian, I've been interested to see how Christians respond. Um, some have responded well and some not so well. And I guess, I guess my question and probably one of the initial reasons I wanted to talk to you is, what are the ways and how, what ways have you seen uh, Christians respond and how should we respond in this and 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 to talk about this uh, these events and the ensuing events that will happen right yeah this is going to be unfolding for a while unfortunately look there's a very selfish narrow part of me that says how should people respond exactly like i do yeah (laughs) (laughs) i want affirmation and unqualified support for everything i think and believe by the way that's an emotional response. In my head, I don't. I know that if everyone responds always the exact same way, it never ends well. That's the pluralism piece you talked about. It does not mm-hmm. mean I sh- don't believe what I believe. It does not mean when I say I think I'm right, I really think I'm right. It just means that I look at the human story and I know when everyone thinks they've understood it right and it's all exactly the same, it never is. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I think, and all of this is a giant Rorschach test, our responses, right? We think, like I said before, it's about some people thousands of miles away. It's not, it's about us. I guess what I would want is for people to find a way without backing off of their most deeply held convictions. I mean, short of wanting to murder me and my family, I think that one, you know, I I can't tolerate. But I mean, the most proud, you know, my bias Israel was home. I'm proudly Zionist. I'm the most pro-Palestinian person. 
I would never have the arrogance to tell them, oh, you ought to give up your views. What I would tell them is what I would tell myself is what I tell anybody who asks. Is there any room in the views you hold most sacred for the possible partial truth of people who don't share those views? Mm. How do you find that not everything they say, not everyone who says something different than you, but where in your spiritual, psychological, intellectual, political, social view do you find the possibility of at least some partial truth being held by those with whom you disagree? That, for me, is the power of the story I mentioned in the article about Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Right? That the questioner said to the president, Mr. President, Is God on our side? How do you know God is on our side? And Lincoln is reputed to have responded. The question of whether or not God is on our side is not what keeps me up at night. What keeps me up at night is whether we are on God's side. And maybe that returns us to the Jewish resource. I'm rooted in a tradition that is at least as much, if not more, about the asking of good questions as it is about getting good answers. President Lincoln, who was in what I hope we would all agree was the good fight. Argue the fight's still ongoing. That's a different conversation, but was fighting the good fight. Still was willing to ask of himself that question. That's what everyone needs to be able to do. Yeah, because it seems like it comes down to humility. That there is, and I, I sometimes think, and it's not just this issue. I, I see it everywhere, and it seems to be even worse these days that everyone is so certain in their belief and so um, arrogant that they're not willing to see the other side might have a, a valid viewpoint at all. Right. I think that is that is the larger human dilemma we have about every issue. And there are technological reasons for that. And they have to do with the fact that, right, you know, for most of 10,000 years of human history, getting information was the biggest human challenge we had. Now you can sit in front of a screen or look at your phone and get all the information in the world. The issue isn't information. It's the wisdom to know that surrounding yourself with an ever-present 24-7 echo chamber probably isn't going to be the healthiest thing. Mm-hmm. So it, the cultivation of that humility is not easy because every one of us can surround ourselves with enough people to think there is no world outside of us. And everyone agrees with us. And all I can do is ask people, can you point to a time in human history when people thought that way and it worked out well? If you can, I will revisit my commitment to to, to pluralism. But I just don't see a time. By the way, the more well-intentioned those absolutists were, the worse things got. Because actually, stuff that's born of hate and fear it spends itself out. But a, a no, what you think of as a noble cause mm-hmm. that has no humility, why should you stop at anything? 
Mm-hmm. Right? So the cultivation of humility, I want to be clear, without giving up passionately held convictions, without succumbing to moral paralysis, without the strength to get out of bed in the morning and pursue that which we believe. Because if you give up that, then we have nothing. To be able to be convicted in that way, right? Not, not to give up those convictions, but actually the more we believe in the sacredness of those convictions, to also remember that their source may be sacred, but we're fallible. Mm-hmm. We're not perfect. And it's in the gap between that perfect ideal that we think we're pursuing and our own imperfection, that's where the humility can come from. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to apologize for the views you hold. Just understand that unless you think you are God, there's probably going to be some room there for possible misunderstanding, right? And in that humility comes the ability to notice one another and to listen to one another. I mean, not everybody. No one needs to listen to everybody. No one can. I know I can't. And I'm with all, I'm pretty good at this. No one can do that. Yeah. But everyone can listen to at least a few people where you go, wow. I never thought of it that way before. That's the test. Do you have enough of a world in which you can every once in a while go, you know, I never thought of it that way before. That's the corrective. So what are some of the, you know, you talk a lot about asking questions. And I think, you know, what are some of the questions we need to be asking right now? So I think we have to first check in with ourselves and ask, what is our default position around this conflict, if we're talking about conflict between Israel and Gaza? Just first notice it. Mm -hmm. What is our default position? And then next ask, why is that my default position? And if the answer is, well, they, stop yourself. If the answer does not at least include a heavy dose of us reflecting on who we are and how that shapes our analysis, we're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? So what is our default? Why is that our default? What is good and true about that default? <laughs> and what, because it is rooted in our personal and necessarily fallible experience might not be 100% right. And the last thing is, could I possibly learn from those who don't share my worldview? I don't have to become them. What could I learn from them? In other words, we can still act in the world like we're 100% certain. Mm-hmm. As long as we understand that we're healthier when we're somewhere between 90 and 51%, sir. <laughs> right? And the example yep. I give people all the time is I'm standing, a really stupid, prosaic example. If I'm standing at a bus stop in a city I don't know, and I know sort of where I want to get, but I'm really not sure which bus line will get me there. 
at some point, I've got to make a decision and get on a bus. Otherwise, I'm going to be standing there literally until kingdom come or it starts to rain. I got to get on the bus. Now, the average person watching me board the bus, they could reasonably conclude, oh, Brad knows exactly where he's going because I 100% got on the bus. So what's the difference if I'm 100% on the bus, but only 70% certain? Here's the difference. How I talk to the driver. How I view my fellow passengers. And the extent to which I look out the window to notice the world around me. I'm 100% on the bus. But I carry enough questions to pay attention to that which is beyond myself. Mm. Mm. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your organization. Um, and I'm hoping I'm going to get the pronunciation correct. Because um, it looks like Klau, but I You got wrong. it. Perfect. Okay, Klau. good. I, I, Thank you, okay. sir. <laughs> you got an A plus in Hebrew. Thank you. So... That was not my strongest subject in seminary, so I'm always afraid I'm going to say something wrong there. That was perfect. Okay. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the organization, um, just because it seems like a very fascinating way of how you bring bringing people together, especially, um, hopefully, by, you know, coming to Israel to kind of see the society um, and and to kind of talk and and to live out all of these practices. Yeah, I mean, I'll try and go quick. Look, Klaus yeah. founded almost 50 years ago by famous, uh, now departed Holocaust teacher and theologian Elie Wiesel and mm-hmm. Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. It was founded around issues connected to grappling with the theological and sociological significance of the Holocaust, both for Jews and for non-Jews. The rough summary of that, when it was directed, and most of the work was for the Jewish community, was the Holocaust taught Jews how to die together, but it never taught them how to live together. Mm. And that in the face of tragedy and the desire to affirm life, the issue is not just to remember the nightmare, but to try and recover the dream. Mm -hmm. And the dream includes, if you've been treated with the absolute indignity that everyone can be without distinction or differentiation murdered, then the response is, how do we live together with that lack of distinct differentiation, right? And actually try and build respect and, and, and life together. So for me, and that's the way of saying that's the sociology of pluralism. Um, what that means intellectually and spiritually, as I believe, and, and my formulation, although it says as well to some extent, that God never made anyone so stupid as to be 100% wrong about everything or so smart as to be 100% right about everything. Mm-hmm. And has been around first serving in the Jewish community and now far beyond because the far beyond is that I don't really think there are any questions of Jewish pluralism. It's a human question. And I hope that every community mobilizes its resources to try and bring more of that into play. And to be able to be proudly and particularly who they are and just as proudly aware that that one way of being is not the only way that God sent into the world. 
And that's our work. And we do it with lay leadership and we do it with uh, religious leadership, not only Jewish, also Christian. The word CLAL is both an acronym because Yitz loved acronyms. It stands <laughs> for Center for Learning and Leadership. But more powerfully, it is the Hebrew word for the whole or for mm. inclusion. Mm. And all the work we do is animated by one of two premises and sometimes both. When it's inside of Jewish life, it's very simple. There should be a place in Jewish life for anyone who wants one, regardless of dogma, doctrine, or belief. Number two, the point of being Jewish actually isn't to be Jewish. <laughs> that we are the beneficiaries of thousands of years of experience and thought and practice that can be shared with people, not so they become Jewish, mm -hmm. but as tools for building more intelligent, more ethical, more compassionate, more loving, more meaningful, more purposeful lives. That these ideas are just that. They're not ends in of themselves. They are tools for creating lives. When we stand in the mirror, we say, I know who I want to be in the world. And these tools will help me achieve that. When it comes to the work we do with Israel, which happened to be something that grew out of my work with United Seminary in Ohio. It was never part of the plan. If someone had said to me 10 years ago, Brad, you're going to found this initiative. It takes hundreds and hundreds of, of kind of from soft evangelical to mainline Protestant you know, ministers. To, I, that's, that's nuts. That's not. No. <laughs> um, and it happened for a variety of wonderful reasons, but it's all built on a six-word premise. And this six-word premise, I believe, is for all leaders, religious or not, confronting any deeply divisive issue. And the six words are, it's more complicated than we know. And so to be able to take Christians as we promised them, to stand where he stood and walk where he walked, and do two things at the same time, fall more deeply in love with their Christian faith, Mm -hmm. And at the same time, understand that it is a more complex, nuanced way in the world than we've often been led to believe. See, I, I don't want, I don't need to produce religious mm. leaders for America who just parrot what I believe. I mean, on my bad days, that's what I want. Those are my bad days. But I admit those are my bad days. Those are my bad days as a teacher, then my bad days as a parent. I mean, I get it. We all want it. But that's hardly my proudest moment. It's to be able to inspire people to stand in their pulpits, to stand in their boardrooms, to stand at the head of their family table when the family can't get along. It doesn't mean it's always the same still. And believe what you believe and advocate for it with the understanding that even as you do it, if it's a truly big issue and it's a truly divisive moment, it's more complicated than we know. That's the cultivation of the humility that doesn't wash out particular pride, particular faith, or passionate commitment. It just doesn't require annihilating everyone who doesn't share ours in order to reach the conclusions we want. That's what Cloud does. We do it in, you know, like I said, communal leaders, secular leaders, religious leaders. It doesn't matter really what the issue is because it's a way of being in the world. And mm -hmm. anytime we can teach that, we want to do it. Well, I think one of the things that I've learned in 
kind of over the years, especially with everything, but especially um, with the Middle East is I think you're right. It, it, that phrase that it's more complicated than we know. And there is something about that complication and almost in some ways a beauty to it, that it is not as stark as we think it is and that it is as complex and mesmerizing as we as more mesmerized than we know for me that is actually i was going to say proof but i'll go with indication if that's more comfortable for people that this is all part of god's will Mm -hmm. because i we don't worship a finite god finite god i get it you can define the whole thing down it's not very complicated at all that kind of finitude, we actually have a classical word for it. It's called idolatry. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that this is all part of God's will and plan is proved out by the fact that no one of us finite people can get it all. Now, if you want to worship a finite God, I guess you can. But like I said, I call that idolatry and the track record ain't great. It's never good. So I want people to feel the fullness of the passion that we often think it means when something comes from God. And then remind themselves, yes, the God I follow is infinite, which means that I have a very holy piece of the plan in my possession. But by definition, it can only be a piece because the plan is the infinite gift of an infinite giver. And I'm finite. I tell people all the time, the way I think of it is, I think that God gifted us an infinite well and then gave each of us an eight-ounce cup to dip into it. Mm-hmm. Now, I want people to have their cup and to dip in, and absolutely, I affirm the holiness of the eight ounces they come up with. Certainly more than makes some people comfortable, including many of my old teachers. (laughs) (laughs) But the only way you can do that is to remember that the woman or man standing next to you, they've got a different eight ounces. And it may not be yours, but more often than not, not always, there are exceptions, but more often than not, it came from the same well. Well, there are a lot of other questions I want to ask, and I know that you're time limited, but that just means I'll have to have you back on the podcast sometimes. I, 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 anytime you want, because your warmth and your wisdom just it exudes, and I have questions I want to ask you. So, oh, I would love that. <laughs> so then, then, then let's make that commitment to each other because. I want to know about you and what you feel most deeply and what it means to lead your community and what are the challenges you're facing. And maybe most important of all, what beyond this do you need to be strengthened in your ministry and in your Mm -hmm. service? Because I don't need more evidence in this conversation to know that the world needs you and your ministry and your service. Thank you. That means a lot.
And I'm serious about that. I'm serious about saying it. It's very clear to me. So I look forward to any time you want, and it doesn't have to be recorded. It okay. Would be a blessing to be in service to that. That is good to know. So if someone wanted to to learn more about Clow and about you, how can they contact you? Um, so they can contact me one of two ways. They can go to the website of the organization, which is CLAL.org. Mm-hmm. Or since when you go there, you can find it anyway, I'm happy to give people my email address. And um, as I tell people, my phone is with me like 24-6, right? The Sabbath is not an Orthodox <laughs> yes, rabbi. Yeah. It <laughs> but it's pretty much on 24 hours a day, the other six days of the week. And and my email is bhirschfield, B-H-I-R-S-C-H-F-I-E-L-D, at C-L-A-L.org. All right. Well, Rabbi Brad Hirschfield, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This is you, truly it was a blessing, blessing to me. You gave at least as much as whatever I was able to give. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for taking the time to listen. As usual, there are links of interest related to this episode with Brad, especially the article he wrote for the Wesleyan magazine Firebrand called Hope and Rage, A Rabbi Reflects on the Hamas Incursion. Check out all the links to learn more about Rabbi Brad and Clow. That's it for this episode of Church in Maine. Remember to rate and review this episode on your favorite podcast app so that others can find this podcast. And consider donating so that we can continue to produce more episodes. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Thanks so much for listening. Take care, Godspeed, and I'll see you very soon.